welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we triple the story power in our show inspired by the classic TV game show title, To Tell the Truth. As part of our season, Be in the Game, each story in this show has three storytellers, but the story only belongs to one of them. Two are imposters. In today's episode, we have a thirst for truth in South Africa, and then discover the truth may or may not set you free, but it definitely makes our storyteller laugh. Can you guess whose story it is and the storyteller who is actually telling the truth? It's game time, and it's story time. Very good. All right. What is your name, please? My name is Matthew Belton, and this is my story. My name is Patty O'Hara, and this is my story. My name is Nick Warden, and this is my story. So when I was in school, my major, my course of study was resource management, natural resource management, kind of a niche course of study, but, but I loved it. I was interested in it, how it worked, the economics of it, how to make that go. And for my graduate study, my thesis, I was interested in, in doing something specifically with water resource management. That's what I was interested in. So in the course of my studies and, and trying to decide what, what my project was going to be, I heard of this, this pilot project happening in Johannesburg, South Africa. They, they, the government there had claimed they were, they were trying this test pilot sort of situation out where they were going to uh, revolutionize the way that the water was, was managed, you know, it was a resource, it's a, a finite resource. They, they found this way to make it profitable and to cure what they called, what I, I thought was kind of a funny way to call it, a, a culture of non-payment. There was a problem with people paying their water bill, getting shut off, etc. So they said they had this thing that was going to revolutionize you know the whole industry and I was interested you know so I talked to my advisors and they said I, I, I would be able to get to go and, and make this this plan to go to Johannesburg and I, I looked into their their project a little more and how it worked was rather than like having a water utility and you paid X amount for using X amount they gave you like this little fob thing each household got a little fob and what you did was you took it to like a kiosk, like a like a corner store, or there's a few different like an ATM type thing, and you added value to your fob, kind of like if you were ever in like a college with a laundry card, you had to load value onto your card to do laundry. It's kind of like that, but with your water. And so you'd take your fob and you'd go to your your water meter and you'd, you'd scan it, and it would add value, and it would it would you would get X amount of water until you ran out of of money, out of value on the fob. They said, you know, it was going to pay for infrastructure, it was going to handle people who didn't pay, it was going to be this revolutionary thing, and they were trying it out. So I wanted to see, like, does does this work? Is this economical? Is there a socioeconomic aspect to it? A cost-benefit analysis? Has this been done? Cultural impact, that sort of thing. So I got the okay to go. And I, I flew from Johannesburg by way of London, so started off in, in England, and it was as summery as England gets. It doesn't get terribly uh, summery even in summer, but it was nice. And, you know, 12, 13 hours of travel later, I land in Johannesburg. And it is like stepping onto another planet. It is Ice Planet Hoth. It is freezing. It's a winter. It's a bad winter. The streets are bad. I had rented a car for, I was going to be there six weeks, and I had rented a car through like an NGO. They figured it all out. It was a manual, no problem. I know how to drive stick, but you drive on the other side of the road in Johannesburg. So the gearbox was on the left hand side 
which was weird. And then also figuring that out in the middle of a snowstorm was very weird. But we got there, and I, I got my car, and I made it into, it was a sort of a subsection of Johannesburg, like a village called Soweto. And Soweto was was kind of an impoverished spot, overwhelmingly black African, kind of a, kind of a rundown spot. In fact, they had taken, there were no street signs, they had taken the street signs and cobbled them all, like sold all the, the, the metal on it for scrap. So it was tough getting around, but I got there. I got my contact from my NGO, a guy named Jabu, super, super amazing guy. We kind of became buds while I was there. Uh, he was, uh, he was like my guide. He was from Soweto. He, he knew the place and he, he was going to help me get my bearings while I was on the ground. You know, I was six weeks. I had the plan to talk to stakeholders like academics and politicians and um, people that live there. Like, does this whole water fob thing really work? So I met uh, I met Jabu at, at a bar. It was kind of a bar. It wasn't really, it was like a half house, half bar. We on overturned milk crates, we're having a beer and we're planning out our situation. And the first thing was, where am I going to stay? Well, I was very grateful when a family in town offered to have me stay with them. And right away when I moved in for the duration of my research, I started to realize that this family really was struggling. It, it, they didn't have a lot of means. And I knew that because we were sleeping on mattresses on the floor, and there were about eight of us under this roof in this one little house. Um, and they didn't pay for electricity. They plugged into the main system, and then they jerry-rigged the lights. The, the lights would never turn off. So they put blankets over the lights at night to just kind of simulate darkness the best they could. They also couldn't afford to pay for water, and so they tapped into the main water system, and that way they could circumvent this metering system that was set up. So I'm kind of getting this inkling here that, you know, this is this is interesting. This isn't working for them. This this metering system, the FOB, isn't working. But to hear the government officials talk about it, they really touted this as the cure for this culture of non-payment. They said, "Look, these are these people are entitled. They feel like they can't pay, and they can. In fact, we set up," they said, "this policy, free basic water policy, where every household gets a free allotment of water every month. And if you're frugal, if you manage it well, you never have to pay for your water. Hey, how how can you beat that? How can they complain? We're giving them water." And if they meet that allotment in the middle of the month, yeah, then they start to pay on this metering system. Well, what they didn't mention or didn't figure in is that most of the households weren't four or fewer people. In fact, as I went around doing my research door to door, I could see that, you know, there were houses like the ones I was staying in. More often than not, they were a lot more than four people. In our case, we had eight on and off because people came and went. And that's because there was a lot of unemployment, for example. They people would stay there when they didn't have a job or they had temporary work, and then they'd leave. So that wasn't quite right. They kind of miscalculated here to me. And then I talked to this medical professional at a local clinic, and he said something else they didn't take into account is a lot of people here have autoimmune diseases. HIV is very prevalent in our community. And these people have water needs, they're a very vulnerable population that was not taken into account. You know, the more and more I got to know this community and talk to the people and the people who worked in the community, the more I started to question 
the financial efficacy of this system. Was this working? And I, I really got concerned when I thought, wait a minute, what if other governments look at this system and think it's really great on the surface, but it's not? So at this point, I'm starting to become concerned, and, and, and I'm starting to come to realize that this idea of a culture of non-payment in many cases is just an inability of people to pay for the amount of water that they need. And the main concern with the free basic water policy was that, again, once you exhaust your allotment of free water per month, if you couldn't afford to pay for water, your water would simply cut off. And that's why the family that I was staying with had circumvented the meter, so that their water wouldn't be cut off when they were no longer able to pay for the water that they used. And increasingly, as I conducted interviews throughout the, the, throughout this community of Soweto, this type of story was more and more common. And I also came to realize that the members of the community were, were deeply concerned and, and angry with this policy and with the situation. And you know, word started getting around that I was there and that I was studying this. And so at one point, Jabu basically organized for me to go and meet a local community leader. And the community leader was, at the time, just happened to be, unbeknownst to me, hosting a gathering at a local church, which functioned as a community center for this community. And so when I arrived, he was in front of a group of people, um, probably numbering you know, maybe 50 to 100 people, all very concerned about this issue. And again, unbeknownst to me, I was sort of invited to speak. And so I gave a presentation just sort of off the cuff because I wasn't really expecting this. I was expecting to just have a private interview with this local leader. But I gave a presentation and you know, it, 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 it became clear that these folks were kind of looking to me to try to do what I could to sort of facilitate the change that they wanted to see, um, what they perceived to be an injustice being perpetrated upon them. This was a conundrum for me because my methodology as a researcher was to try to be as objective as I could, to be sort of a neutral, objective researcher analyzing the, the socioeconomic impacts of this policy and the efficacy of this this policy, and now people are looking to me to try to sort of facilitate the change that they want to see. Um, then the the meeting ended, and we, unbeknownst to me, the plan appeared to be that the meeting would end, and then this group of people would get together and essentially engage in a protest march. And so all these people got together, and I was sort of swept up in the the march, and we all started marching through the sweet, the streets of Soweto, and we marched for quite a while, and then again, unexpectedly, we end up ending the march at sort of this, this gathering of other protesters. More and more people are joining us as we march, and we end at this sort of highway. It's like a small highway. And at the time, other protesters, protesters had already got together and shut off the highway with various debris and things like that. They had essentially obstructed the highway in protest. And, you know, so, so now not only am I an objective observer sort of being, being um, 
uh, encouraged to do what I could to help these people to sort of advocate on their behalf. But I'm caught up in a protest, and now I'm caught up in this, this what would ultimately become this standoff with local police. And so the police end up showing up, asking people to disperse, and they don't. And then they use various means to disperse them, tear gas, for example, to disperse the crowd. And, and so now I'm supposed to be the subjective researcher, but I'm witnessing what I perceive to be an injustice perpetrated against uh, a particularly vulnerable group of, of people. And you know, after this experience, I, I went back to write up my thesis. And I found it extremely difficult to grapple with the methodology, the methodological approach to this. Um, you know, it, it was very difficult for me to maintain the objectivity that I was supposed to maintain. Um, I, I, you know, I wrote it up, and it was well received, and I'm grateful for that. But in truth, I, I came to realize that that when you're studying something that you're passionate about, it's it's really in many ways impossible to remain completely objective. And and in this particular case, that was. That was certainly the truth. Um, I, I learned later that the policy uh, is still in place. There was a legal challenge, but that legal challenge failed, unfortunately. Okay, our storytellers take another trip to Africa, different part of Africa. And we are going to bring our audience panel in for this round. Let's see who, okay. Uh, we've got one new couple and a canine. Nope, we have two dogs. Oh, it's the battle of the dogs. Uh, one's facing forward and the other one's facing the wrong direction. But who knows which side is the smartest side of the dog? I don't really know. I'm a cat person myself. All right. So uh, who is, let's see our new couple with the hat uh, and the ginger dog. What are your names? Uh, we are. I'm Jamie Brennan. This is Owen. And this is Hooch. Hi, Jamie, Owen, and Hooch. And uh, how is it that you're at Story Story tonight? Oh, we are always at Story Story night. It is one of our favorite things to do. Oh, I love to hear that. Well, thank you for being at our 11th birthday party. <laughs> All right, so you have seen how this works. You get to ask one question. Uh, I guess each of you, can, uh, Hooch can ask the last question, uh, can ask a question of the storyteller. You don't have to go in any specific order, and you can ask the same question or different questions. It's up to you. So we were going to ask um, each of them what their favorite or most memorable meal was while they were in Africa. I'm happy to start. That's fine with me. Um, oh, no, oh. it's too late. I'm going. Uh, <laughs> So it, the locals had this, it was, and I forget the name of it because I could never pronounce it. It was Poch, Poch, it sounded Russian, but it's Dutch actually. And it's basically a Dutch oven that you build a little like uh, fire around and, and you put it, it's, it's a communal dinner and you kind of just throw whatever in there. It's usually veggies, whatever's like lamb, whatever's on kind of around. And uh, one of the first nights I was there, we had a big one of these. There was a bunch of folks from Soweto came uh, and, and brought a little something to add to it. And it was, it comes out like a stew basically. And it was amazing. My favorite meal, the one that I could recognized was called Utsmeider. And it, I, I think it is a Dutch thing, I guess. It's got peas and eggs and things in it. And what I wasn't comfortable with or familiar with was how we ate it. We used our fingers. So that was unusual for me. But it was delicious. 
I think my favorite meal was that they have the, they had this stuff called uh, called pop mealy pop, which is like the starch there that they have locally, and it's got this weird sort of consistency between like mashed potatoes and maybe rice. And um, there wasn't a lot of vegetables or fruit there, but they served a, a really great sausage with it. And it was street food, but it was good. Really, you can fix anything with a sausage. <laughs> All right, <laughs> moving on to uh, let's see who. Uh, we have, uh, I think Nicole's there, aren't you, Nicole? Yes, there she is. Do you like to eat eggs with your hands? Me? Yeah. Yeah, I've had some African food, actually. Oh, and, okay. Um, yeah, like any good Boisean, we cook a lot because we don't always get to go a lot of places. All right, <laughs> very good. All right, what questions yeah. do you have for the storytellers? Um, okay. Do I have to ask an order or is it okay to go out of order? You can go out of order. Just say three, two, or one. Okay. Um, storyteller number three, what, um, what degree were you working on? I was working on a master's of science in environmental or in natural resources management. Okay. Um, storyteller number two, um, were you ever in the Peace Corps? No. Short answer. <laughs> no. Um, story number, um, teller number one. What did you learn from this experience? Yeah, I, I honestly think the big thing was that uh, my methodology in going was kind of flawed from the start. I really expected to be sort of this third party sort of clinical observer. And once I got boots on ground and saw the situation and it was impossible, like I, I, I did my best and I was even really critical of my methodology in like my final paper. But, um, I, that was, that was a really tough and really important lesson that I learned was that, yeah, I, stuff like that, you got to come correct. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. She's processing those answers. And we move to our last uh, group here. I think it was, uh, was it Adam and, nope, it's Michaela and and my brain. I'm, I've moved to Jericho, but I don't think that's your name. <laughs> Jordan, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but if I ever need to break a wall down, Jordan, I'll walk seven times around you and play a trumpet. All right. Little Bible reference there. What IRB hangups did you run into with your proposal? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of, like, when you're talking about traveling to a country like that, and in the, in the way that I was, there was a lot of red tape to cut through, obviously. Um, we had to get a lot of permissions from the kind of the local and state and, and national government of South Africa, in addition to my university. So, um, I mean, that's just to start. That was plenty, I would say. Good answer. I was thinking of birth control, so... <laughs> All right, you have another question or same question? Um, let's see, uh, storyteller number two, um, who was the president of South Africa at the time you were there? Oh, golly, it was a long time ago. Um, I'm embarrassed, I'm very embarrassed. I can't even tell you the president of the United States was then, I'm sorry. That's okay. But. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fan of Nelson Mandela, but he wasn't, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, your last question. Storyteller number three, do you, um, do you remember who it was that had guaranteed clean or safe drinking water to the people of South Africa prior to the time you were there? 
So it was my understanding when I was there that it was a constitutional promise, or at least the local people believed it was a constitutional promise that happened during the apartheid transition. But, you know, it seems like their legal challenge failed. So I don't know whether it's recognized or not. Thank you. Those were some very thoughtful questions. All right, as usual, we are going to open a poll up for the rest of the audience to weigh in. This one's called A Thirst for Truth. And again, vote for your choice, Story Templar number one, number two, or number three. It looks like we've got votes coming in for everybody. We'll let you keep going, and we'll come back to our audience panel and find out who they think is the the owner of this story. Let's start with Hooch. They're going to vote for storyteller number three. And Nicole, who are you selecting? Number two. Very good. And uh, the Wall of Jericho is also selecting storyteller number three. Wonderful. All right, let's go ahead and see whether our the rest of the audience agrees with you. Uh, two of the three of you voted for number three. Let's, re- let's go ahead and end that poll and reveal the results. And it looks like we have a fair number of people that agree that it is storyteller number three. All right, so let's go ahead and find out. Will the person whose story this belongs to please reveal yourself? Hi, my name is Nick Warden, and this is my story. Storyteller number three, Nick Warden. All right, let's bring up our next group of storytellers. Uh, What is your name, please? My name is Jessica Holmes, and this is my story. My name is Matt Melton, and this is my story. My name is Patty O'Hara, and this is my story. Right. Well, there are a lot of ways of telling if somebody's lying. They don't blink. They don't look you in the eye. They tilt their head. They touch their face. They shuffle their feet. They repeat words. Or did I already say that? Um, <laughs> they think I'm funny. Um, but um, how do you tell if someone is telling the truth? For me, it's laughter. I have this really annoying habit of laughing when truthing. And with my laugh, it, it's a little bit high-pitched and fake-sounding, so it makes it even worse. So um, it hasn't worked out well for me, even far back from when I was a kid. Like, the first time I can remember this was when my dad, he used to show me his childhood favorites, and he he swore to me that... Captain Kangaroo was Frank Zappa's dad. And I was like, I see the hair, the eyebrows, I see it. I believe you. So at a party, um, I was telling all of his friends, I was like, did you know that Captain Kangaroo is Frank Zappa's dad? And they kind of like, like, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and it was, <laughs> and um, I realized later that they were just laughing at me. So that wasn't great. Sorry if I busted your ears out. Um, that's the problem with this. <laughs> but um, this has also gotten me into hot water professionally. I was at the final stage of this really coveted government job. And the final thing that we had to do was take a polygraph exam. 
And um, already before, it still makes me nervous, already before the exam, I was just, uh, it was just a ball of giggles, you know? So I went, I went into that room just ready to... <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, but he, I thought he was just breaking the ice. He just started asking me some questions, um, like, what's your name? Jessica Holmes. Where do you, where do you live? Boise. Um, have you ever stolen anything? And I was like, oh, I just, <laughs> I just stole a Kit Kat bar one time, but then my mom found out and then I had to go tell the, the person and then, <laughs> I swear I'm telling the truth. <laughs> and he was taking notes the whole time. So I realized that he wasn't breaking the ice. He was actually getting a baseline for this magic here, and um, <laughs> and uh, and then when he started the exam, he made it really clear. He was like, "Now you can only answer in yes or no answers. This is how it goes." So um, his first question was, "You are called Jessica," and I just thought, "I'm called Jess. I'm called Jesse. I'm called." What up, Jay Holmes? I'm called Kaka by my older sister. She, I hate her. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so I felt like whatever I said would be would be a little bit lying. So all I did was go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how to answer this yes or no question, but it's both, right? My, my name is Matt, but it's Matthew, but my birth certificate is Matthew, but I, I usually go by Matt. So it, it, just absurd, this absurd, I'm, I'm strapped to this chair, I'm facing a wall with this guy behind my back, and he's asking me this impossible question, and I just start, I just start laughing. And, I, I, and, I can, and I'm just envisioning the, the little polygraph pencil thing just going, this guy's full of crap, Ugh, don't let him near anything. And it makes me laugh harder. And I, just a feedback loop of like this thing is—is is there an earthquake? What's going on? And some somehow, you know, and I, I answer. So yes, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess that yes, that's my name. Uh, and somehow, the truth machine or whatever gives me the all thumbs up because I passed or whatever. They don't tell you yes or no, but I got the job, so they must have liked my answers, and it was great. So. A few years after this job ended, I uh, was kind of in a celebratory mood. So me and a friend, I took my friend, I didn't pay for him. He came with me. But we we did two weeks in Ireland after this. And I, this is kind of a dodoy. But if you ever have a chance, I, I highly recommend it. Because we had an amazing two weeks of like pubs and mountaining, hiking, and, and like running through farmers, like crops like lord of the ring style to go look at old castle ruins like it was incredible it was amazing uh and, and by the end of it so our, our two weeks are up and you know blowing off some steam from this kind of you know tricky job and we get to the dublin international airport now when you're coming back if you've ever traveled internationally when you come back home you have to go through customs most of the time you go through customs when you get home they at the port of entry the airport or whatever they'll they'll you know you'll go through the whole do you have anything to declare etc etc well in dublin they do what's called pre clearance, which means that the customs agents, the U.S. Border Patrol, the customs agents are in Dublin, and you have to get checked out before you get on the plane. So they say, you know, the travel guides or whatever say, get to the airport really, really early so you have time. No big deal. We Plenty of time. We show up. We get there. You know, we, it, pretty easy if you follow directions. Stand here. Fill out this. Answer that. No big. We get all the way up to to we're filling out our final you know, our forms or whatever. And it's do you have anything to declare? Fruits, vegetables, whatever. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Until we get to item twelve. 
Now, I, this, I don't know why I remember the number, probably because this was like traumatic, because it asked, in pretty simple language, have you been on a farm or exposed to livestock? So I thought back to the polygraph test. Well, my name's Matthew, but it's Matt, but it's also Matthew. I can't answer this. It's a yes or no. Check one box. Ireland is nothing but farmland. I don't know if you've ever been. It's mostly farms that we were cutting through farms and like I may have, I don't, I'm not smuggling sheep or whatever, but I, 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 I pet a goat one time. Like, is that what, what do you want from me? So I decide, I think back when they were, when I was taking the polygraph, they said, they're not judging the deed. They're judging whether or not you tell the truth. So I said, I have to, I'm going to tell the truth. Yes, of course. Dedoy farm ireland and my friend was like i'm check we, we didn't we didn't do that we didn't go to a farm i'm checking no and i said no no if we answer it differently they're going to think it's weird so we both check yes and we wait hand over our passports hand over our form and, and the customs agents looking through all of it you know pretty straightforward they get to item 12 and he stops they say you were on a farm recently and i was like yeah well <laughs> ireland am i right farms <laughs> anyway gotta catch that flight and he goes uh-huh and does one of these, and then before I know it, my friend and I are being whisked away to this like law and order investigation cooler, like clean room or whatever, and we're told to sit right there and someone will be with us in a bit. Well, that in a bit was turning into five, 10, 15 minutes, and we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, they're just going to come in with some sort of a sheep dung detector and whisk it over our bodies and find out that we're clean and send us on to board our plane. We got here early. Everything's in order. Let's just get on with it. It didn't happen. We waited, waited, waited. Finally, this woman comes out from behind this gray divider wall, wearing a white lab coat. Her hair's back in a tight bun. She's got a clipboard in her arm. She never looks up. And she comes out and says, Anderson, well, I look at my husband, who was traveling with me, and we're O'Hara, and so we didn't answer. And there was no one else in the room, so they didn't answer. Oh, Anderson, she says, louder this time, more impatient. And I started to laugh. because. <laughs> and she said, what's so funny? Is something funny? Well, I know. <laughs> we're not Anderson. <laughs> We're all here. <laughs> and she that wasn't funny to her. And she, she got her name and she took us back behind the wall where she was probably standing for the past 15 minutes listening to a squirm while we waited. So we're back there and there's this, this stainless steel countertop and a sink. And she tells us to sit down. We do. She says to my husband to give her, her his shoes. He hands them to her and she starts scrubbing those shoes like there's nothing else to be done, and this is her, this is a life or death thing, scrubbing. Squitch, squitch, squitch with the spray bottle, scrub, 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 squitch, 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 scrub, 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 and my husband, we're both just, this is crazy. What in the world? The shoes are clean. And I, 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 my husband turned to me and said, I told you we should have said no on item 12. Well, this agent with supersonic hearing without even turning to us, still scrubbing, says, if you lie on a government form, there is a severe penalty. And she's scrub, scrub, scrubbing away. That cost us five more minutes. I'm laughing because we didn't lie. We told the truth. <laughs> five more minutes. Every time I laughed, I swear it was five more minutes. She finally turns around and then she points to me, give me your shoes. I said, well, these are my airport shoes. You probably want my shoes that I walked on to castles in and stuff. They're there in the suitcase. I'll go get them. Sit down. You do not approach that suitcase. 
She went in and dug out the shoes and she started to scrub, 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 squish, 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 scrub, 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 scrub. Well, <laughs> this, there is no, they're clean shoes. What could you possibly, I heard her, I swear I heard her say, out oh, damn spot out, I say. We started to refer to her as Lady Macbeth under our breath, of course. We wouldn't say that out loud. Squitch, squitch, squitch. Anytime there was a snork or a giggle, five more minutes. Penalty. This was obviously not getting us anywhere. We were prolonging our misery by sniggering and laughing and snorkeling and whatever. And she's scrubbing away. I'm looking at the clock. Our flight is going to leave shortly now. We got there in plenty of time, but we've been sitting here watching our shoes get clean, for heaven's sakes. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got to stop laughing. And what's the solution? Well, I learned long ago that I laugh when I'm telling the truth, so... I'll throw something untruthful out there. I turned to my husband. I pulled an old one out of my hat, and I said, Did you know that Captain Kangaroo is Frank Zappa's father? (laughs) And at that point, she snapped, or she thought I snapped, or maybe she just finished cleaning my shoes. I don't know, but she dropped the brush, turned off the water, grabbed an evidence bag, shoved my shoes in there, crammed them back in the suitcase, zipped it up, and told us to get out of there. We ran, ran to our gate, made it with seconds to spare. And as I'm catching my breath, I'm thinking to myself, the untruth set us free. Thank you, storytellers. Now we are going to bring our audience panel uh, up and let's see who we've got. Some, maybe we have some old friends with us. Maybe we have some new friends. Pam Clark. Pam. Hello, Pam. Thank you. The, Pam, I happen to know, is one of our subscribers. Thank you for that support. And uh, go ahead with your questions. So I have the same question for all three storytellers, and that is, what was your favorite libation in Ireland? Well, I love a stout beer, so I drank a lot of Guinness, right? Yes. <laughs> Can I tell you, I, I, I went to the, we went to the Guinness brewery and all that, and it was great, but they let you do a tasting at the end, and Guinness actually makes another beer. It's, it's sold in the States. It's, called, it's spelled Smithwicks, but they pronounce it Smittics. And it's kind of, it's a little, it's like a Guinness stout, but it's a little cleaner. It's more of like a lager. I order it every time I see it. It's amazing. I loved the Irish stew in Glendalough mm. on a, after a cold hike. It was delicious. Did it have eggs in it? <laughs> we ate it with our hands. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Pamela. And our last, uh, our good friend, Nicole, who has been with us in several panels. And uh, she's, she, you guys be ready because she's got some tough questions. She, she gets in there into the nitty gritty. All right, go ahead, Nicole. Okay, number three, tell me a little bit more about the cleaning process. Like what kind of brush, cleaner, like what else did you notice? You know what? I noticed her elbows. Her back was to us. So all I could do is hear, squitch, 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 and kutcha, 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 kutcha with the brush. So I didn't see the tools. And honestly, we didn't want to even look. It was, she was so scary. So I remember her elbows going back and forth and just, you know, and her bun kind of bouncing on her head. So it's... Did you smell anything? 
Um, if I did, I don't remember. Probably it was chemical something. Yeah. Technically, that was a second question, but I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on to another storyteller. Okay, number two. Um, was there an underlying personal reason that you um, went on this trip? Uh, for me, it was celebratory. Like it was a really big deal. Like that, the the job that I did, uh, that I jumped all these through these hoops for, was a big deal. It was a limited service position with the federal government, so it had like a, a definitive end date, but it paid really well. And I I probably wouldn't have been able to go to a place like Ireland at that time uh, without those kind of that kind of salary. So that was that was it for me. Just get to go leave the country for once. Um, number one, can I hear you laugh again? <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Holm. <laughs> Pam, uh, what, which one for you? Because my partner says he liked his beer answer. His, <laughs> he liked the beer answer. What was that beer called again? Smittix. Smittix. It's spelled Smithwicks. Yeah, we got but it. If you pronounce right. it that okay. way, you're rude. Okay, all right. <laughs> All right, Smitty. Okay, and Nicole, who are you going to select? I'm going with one. Number one. So everyone got a vote this time, huh? Well, no, not Patty. Oh, Patty didn't get a vote. <laughs> Matt got two votes for his stupid beer. I mean, his you wonderful. Try it, and then you tell me. His wonderful answer. All right, let's go ahead and reveal who the audience has picked. It looks like it's a tie. Uh, between number one and number two. Well, this is very exciting. Will the person whose story this belongs to please reveal yourself? My name is Patty O'Hara, and this is my story. Storyteller number three, Patty O'Hara. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on our Story Story Night YouTube channel. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, podcast production by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. Story Story Night is a member of the Boise Arts and Culture Anti-Racism Coalition, which builds on our commitment to be a platform where people tell their own stories. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 